Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. I'm Mecca Don here with my co-host, V. Mama mentality for life. Today is May 14th, 2020. Thank you guys for tuning in. I know you can be anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. We are still quarantined and social distancing due to this coronavirus pandemic, but we're still going to figure out a way to bring you content at all costs, so please bear with us. On today's show, we have a very special guest, former Ohio State wide receiver and current New York giant Austin Mack. We talk about everything in his life from his days at Ohio State, differences between quarterbacks he's played with, what the New York Giants can expect from him, his relationship with Gary V, and much more. We'll also do some news and notes of some popular sports, music, and pop culture stories from around the country, including the NBA, MLB possibly returning, versus battles, and man, a lot of RIPs. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Remember now that our Patreon subscribers will get our episodes on Wednesdays, a night early. These donations help keep our show going. If you want to help keep us on air, you can donate at www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys Podcast. And don't forget to grab some wristbands, shop.pilotboys.com. Let's go. Where the Pilot Boys at? Listen to the Pilot Boys podcast. We have a very special guest in the house today, former Ohio statewide receiver and now New York Giant Austin Mack. Austin, what's up? Welcome to the show. What's going on, Mecca and V, man? Appreciate you having me. I see, no, no I doubt. see that that I see that quarantine beard is growing just like mine. Man, it's getting nice. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So let's jump right into it, man. So first of all. Let's talk a little bit about the draft, obviously, and, and, and kind of how that went in that process. Obviously, you're in New York now. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, like just, you know, what that process was like and how did you end up in New York? Yeah, man, it was a stressful three three days. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, ever since you left Ohio State, I mean, it's just the combine training. You go through the combine, you hope that there's a pro day. But for us, with the pandemic and what Rona's been doing to everything uh it kind of pushed everything back so it's kind of you know you're still training uh if you're right. possible try and get a virtual pro day in uh for some but at the most just try and stay fit healthy um until combine came i mean it was so up in the air for a guy especially like me who were you know not guaranteed top you know three round guys um so it was kind of just up in the air you didn't know what team you're gonna go to or who really had interest so right um, yeah it was it was different and, so how, after, and how how stressful was that? Um, you had the the NFL Combine, and after the Combine, you probably fully anticipated also having a pro day to kind of find that out. How how was that? And how did you take that? And how did you just manage that that part of it as well? Yeah, man. But you know, mostly just trying to uh, you know stay at peace and and really. Uh, fine tune just knowing that I can only can control so much right and just making sure I'm doing the most that I can uh, with what the opportunities that I'm given and uh, no matter what just believing that it's God's plan I'm gonna be good either way so um, 
you know, just, just excited for what's to come and just being in the now and knowing that right now it was either training, right now it was either go to the combine or right now it's just trying to stay quarantined. So, uh, right. just, just, just like that. And after the draft, you ended up in New York uh, as a giant pretty quickly. I mean, that was announced not, yeah. not that long after. Talk to us about how that, that process and in terms of choosing what team uh, you ended up going to. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I really – my agent was the front runner with uh, trying to speed the teams and uh, came down to, uh, you know, I think in my terms a really good fit. And, uh, man, I'm just excited to be a giant and uh, excited for the future. Yeah. One other question, too, about just Ohio State receivers in general. Obviously, um, you know, not having, like you said, a, a pro day, I think, hurt a couple of you guys, you know, with Benjamin and obviously KJ. I don't think any of you guys kind of went where you got, where we think you guys should have gone in terms of just, like, value. Um, but I think you guys all ended up in good places. But why do you think generally Ohio State receivers get slept on? It's not just this year. I mean, Terry went in the third round. You know, Michael Thomas went in the second round. Guys that we feel like their value isn't as high as it should be. Why do you think that is? Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the draft and everything, it's more of the, the media-led uh, story. It's kind of what the narrative is around you. Um, a lot of our guys uh, at Ohio State, man, we're just – we're tough, we're dirty, but, I mean, we're not going to have flashy stats. Um, mm-hmm. And it's going to be, you know, especially after that 2015 year when it was – uh, 2016 um, with JT in that, in that full room. I mean, there's just so many guys. I mean, so many guys with a lot of talent. So it was, you know, really a rotation, but everybody just wanted each other to be successful. And there was no just we – didn't, we didn't really care about anything else. I mean, right. in, the, in the way that the room just ran, even the coaches, it's not like we want to get somebody a 1,000 yards or this person so many yards. It's like – what can we do the most for the team? And um, what's, 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 you know, better to know is that the Ohio State receivers that they do take, I mean, they're balling. Yeah. <laughs> so oh. no matter where you at, like, I mean, we got a good resume of guys that are, that are doing pretty well. So I'm pretty confident, you know, that it'll continue on. So that's, that's what's most exciting. And you mentioned like just how deep the receivers room was like, all of you guys coming from high school to Ohio State were used to being the man, right? Like the ball was going to you every time a QB dropped back. But with Ohio State and the multiple receiver sets, does that get challenging at, at times? Because you want in high school, it's like when there was a play, you know, with the ball was coming to you going to college and knowing there are multiple other guys who kind of have that same feeling and it's got to get spread out a little bit. Yeah. So like coming in, Man, I, I didn't, I didn't, my sole purpose was to start, you know, I wanted to get on the field as much as possible. So like, I never had any desire to like, oh, I need to get the ball. I need, I, shit, I was out there for one or two plays. I was happy if it was the last yeah. thing <laughs> against Army, right? Yeah. right. And older, older you got too. Um, I think it's just the culture and the type of coaches we have that just instilled in us this unselfishness that, Man, I really sophomore junior, I really didn't care. Like I was just like, I'm hoping we all eat. There's plenty of times where uh my junior year when you know Johnny and uh Terry were playing the Z position, it was times where Terry had a touchdown, they were about to call another play for the Z to score. He pulled himself out, put Johnny in and gave him that touchdown. 
Like there's got multiple stories like that where, you know, it's just this unselfishness in that room. Now, when I got to a senior and, you know, obviously personally, I, and this is, this is when I, I felt, I felt that the most. And I was, I was uh, really having to gravitate towards Terry, Johnny and Paris when they were going through it. Cause when you're a young guy, you know, you got another year, you're not really thinking about it. But when you know, this is your last year, this gotta be your money year. I had started the season off with a couple of hamstrings. Um, so I was already late to the ball game, then again into the season. And you might see one or two balls, but beating, beating the hell out of teams. So it's like mm-hmm. only playing a half. So it's not like there's a ton of balls going around. And we're, I mean, we're running, running the ball really well. So there's a, there was a point in the season where it was like, man, I'm frustrated because these yeah. stats ain't going, isn't going to get me drafted. But that's mm-hmm. when I had to talk with Terry. That's when I had to talk with everybody. Um, Mo has, and it was really just letting them know that it's going to be good in, no matter what. You know, they know your talent. They know where you're coming from, and you, they know your situation. So it was more of just being okay with that and, like, accepting our role as a team and as a leader, that that's not the type of vibes that we need to have in the receiver room, being a leader and being uh, an older guy. So uh, definitely challenging, but it was yeah. definitely uh, it was definitely uh, something to go through. Sorry. So overall, it seems like you you. How do you kind of sum up your your career at Ohio State? Because I think for, personally, I feel like you know you're one of the best receivers that I've seen in terms of, especially in terms of route running that's ever come through Ohio State. I think that you know, obviously, given the amount of different receivers that we had, and then also some, certain injuries, you probably didn't get to produce like you would like to. But when you look back, right. how do you feel about your career? Oh, man, just overall, when I when I think of my career, man, I'm just I'm super thankful and blessed for it because, one, making that decision not only got me to play at Ohio State, but the amount of people I met along the way and me just developing as a man overall um, and getting my degree is what is I'm most proud about. Like, you know, if, if uh, everybody wishes they could have a 1,000 yards for multiple touchdowns, but in reality – the, the trials that I went through and, and, and the struggles I went through, man, in the long run, I'm more proud of because it's, it's changed me and grew me into, into some, something so much more. Tell, tell us a little bit about having a major injury, right? Like when you're younger, you're, you're not necessarily thinking like that. And then for the first time you have a major injury where you just can't play. Yeah. Like yeah. walk us through that, like the mental aspect of that. <laughs> as well as the on-field part of that, knowing what you're capable of, but that you're just physically limited and you have no control over over that situation. Yeah, that was uh, – yeah, so I broke my foot. That was in Purdue my uh, junior year. And that was – I was having a decent year. Um, even possibly might have thought – there was conversation not even uh, when it declared the season finished off good um, to it just abruptly stopping. And yeah. when it comes to – when you when you love something so much and and you think this is everything you want for it to just get taken from you, like just as a man, like there'd be times where I'd be sitting in my room and I'm watching the Maryland game at home in bed that year and and we're losing and I'm just sitting there mad, you know, just mad and it's like this internal struggle, this internal fight was like it, I didn't know what it was and there was a time where. Um, I really told myself, I said, all right, I got to figure out what's up. Cause like, who are you? You know, like football ain't going to last forever. So 
for you to be acting like this or feeling like this, this mentality, it, it ain't healthy. And uh, an injury and anything like that is so real. And for me to just been so blind for it, you know, I'm glad it happened then and not, right. you know what I'm saying, in a couple of years. So right. this is one of the most, that was probably the hardest thing I ever had to go through in my life was that, that six, seven month period. Um, but man, incredibly strong from that. Yeah. Talk to us too about about you know another issue that we we haven't really mentioned yet in terms of kind of um, at least some of the I don't want to call it struggle but some of the issues that you had to deal with at Ohio State is you dealt with you know multiple different quarterbacks right you dealt with you know at least from you know JT and uh, obviously Dwayne Haskins and and then Justin Fields this past year talk to us a little bit about about the differences between them and what the offenses were like with those guys. Yeah, so um, JT and Justin are a lot, very similar. Um, guys that are, you know, we call it that 12th or that 11th man element. Usually when you have a pro-style quarterback like Dwayne, it's 11 defenders against 10 offensive players, you know, because the quarterback's never mm-hmm. really a factor. Um, mm-hmm. and, and with Justin and JT being able to run, man, it makes it makes things a lot, a lot easier. Um because you're able to do a lot more. Uh, and that's something that Coach Mar really wanted to hone in on. Um, with having Coach Day and that new evolved offense coming through, especially when we started with um, Dwayne and then moving forward, man, it was so fun. Um, obviously, with Dwayne, yeah. we, we threw the ball a lot more than we did with the other two quarterbacks. But at the end of the day, it's just whatever you need for the team. So um being a, a quarterback guy for as a receiver, you know, you want to be friendly for everybody, just being able to be in your spot. That's the number one thing I did. You know, I didn't care if it was um, you know, Corey Curtis or, you know, anybody. As long as I'm in my spot and this and it's, we're able to make that connection, that's easy. We just have to make sure we have that communication. Um the only time I you know, Justin really had me on, was on my nerves was that first week and he was trying to throw hundred miles per hour. You know, ball straight up. <laughs> like, hey, bro, <laughs> you know, right, calm down. Right, but, uh, right. but no, man, it's it, what's the ceiling? What's the ceiling for Justin? What's his ceiling? I ain't gonna put put no. I ain't gonna make no standards for him. But man, he's a t- super talented dude, and I think I, there's a lot that he can grow in. Um, being a guy that played with him and has played with like a JT coming in, he I seen like the elite to Dwayne becoming, you know, an elite. And seeing where he's at, he, he can grow a lot. And I'm super excited for him when it comes to his, just his raw passionate, passion abilities and also being able to scramble. So um, right. he's, he's going to be very elite. Spe- speaking about your skill set for a second, um, what do you think are the attributes you have as a receiver that put you in the mm-hmm. best position to succeed as an NFL receiver? Obviously, you haven't even fully scratched the surface of your potential yet either. Yeah. But what do you think are your your strongest attributes or your position? Right. Like how you said earlier, Mecca, man, just a great route runner. Uh, fine-tune that gift, um, knowing that I'm not going to go out there and run a 4-2, so I'm not going to blaze by anybody. But defense has to run just as fast as me, and I promise you I'm going to stop faster than you uh, and get to the ball. <laughs> right. So, right. so right. just being able to, 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 to have great routes, great feet, and also just being knowledgeable with the game. Making making and knowing where the defense is going to be, so it's easier for me and not less uh, strenuous. Right. When we look back at, at Ohio State, like your your time period that you've been there, pretty much the last decade. You know, obviously mm-hmm. since Urban got there, um, 
there have been a lot of special talent that's come through there. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, you know? And um, so, you know, as a fan, you know, as a f- former player and as a fan, and we look at things differently than people who are actually in the locker room. And one question I have for you is, did you realize, I mean, obviously you just are fresh out of Ohio state, but did you realize how special it was like every day in practice, how special it was, what you were a part of? I didn't really understand that until my senior year. Um, mm. There was a, I think it was either in camp or going into camp coach um, challenged us to man, create a goal. It doesn't, it doesn't, maybe it's call your mom every day or, Maybe it's, you know, brush your teeth. I mean, whatever goal it was for you, right? Uh, create mm-hmm. that goal. My goal was to learn everybody's name in the facility and mm-hmm. be able to make that interaction. I was in the training room so much that I knew every training staff, plus mm-hmm. all their assistants, plus the cleaning people that came in. And right. I was able to see Ohio State and the structure from, from everybody that helps me just be able to go out there and play at my best, and. Mm. It's a humbling thing and being able to say that they care about us, really understand that they care about us so much and about Ohio State, that's really what it means to be a Buckeye. And um, you don't really know that until you're in, the, in there and you're with them for, for that amount of time. So that's, yeah. that's, really, that's really cool to me. I mean, I think the world pretty much knows how special of a place Ohio State is as far mm-hmm. as a football school, right? But I think what's kind of very special about you is the advantage you took of the opportunity it creates for you off the field, right, as well. With, you mentioned your degree, um, and you also started an organization called Ross. Can you just t- take us into that a little bit in your experience at Ohio State as a student as well? Oh, yeah. Um, well, it really just came from, uh, you know, one of my freshman year, sophomore year, going through um, school and football and there was nothing else there was no more substance and to me like I just feel like you need more to life than just you know your football and, and your school like there's 60,000 students at Ohio State and I only know maybe two percent because right. I haven't been able to just expand my horizon there's so many people with talents hobbies passions like and in, in Ohio State's like another city Amongst its mm-hmm. own, and it's just being able to find that. So we would, one of our advisors uh, with Sasso would always put together like these nice little meetings on Sundays, where some of the minority kids, uh, male athletes, would just come together, we'll chop it up, you know what I'm saying? Uh, have some, have some to eat. And there be it was one day where it was, uh, I think it was 2017 summer, where we was like, let's make this into something because one like the access, the reach that we could do and, and a lot of the positive we can come from it. And um, we did. It was about nine founders of us. We put it together, um, created an organization called Redefining Athletic Standards, um, which the goal is basically to bridge the gap between, you know, athletes and regular students to create a, uh, more opportunities for athletes to, to find success and opportunity to not just be athletes, but to give them a why, which I'm a full believer in. Um, and, and to just give more business opportunities to, to these kids and, and create relationships. Um, there's a, a lot of things we've done. Like we would do a lot of events uh, that were more specific to athlete schedules um, mm-hmm. because most of the stuff like, you know, BSA or all these other, they're on a Wednesday night or 
a Saturday, you know, during the day. And it's like no athlete can make that, especially football players. So um, one of the coolest things to me is that I used to know all the football players, but I didn't know none of the track players. I didn't know our track runners. I didn't know none of the soccer players. Mm -hmm. Didn't even know we had a fencer and a, and a gymnast. But now <laughs> now I know all these other people. And right. and, and uh, to me, that's, that's the coolest thing, being able to just – create something organic, another brotherhood on, you know, that's all student led, um, on campus. Um, that was, you know, a lot of fun and, uh, and, and it was, I think very beneficial. Well, one thing, one thing we always liked about you, you know, is that you, you know, thought outside of the typical stereotypical box, right. Of an athlete. And, mm -hmm. you know, you actually learned a lot of this stuff and started implementing some of this stuff in college. A lot of guys who actually do realize that this is, you know, there's more to life than, than football. They don't start too much later. But it seems like you already started early, and mm -hmm. and I guess along those lines, you also kind of have an idea, you know, maybe not fully fleshed out, but a kind of goals of where you want your life to go and other things that you want to get involved in as you progress in your career and even beyond. Talk to us a little bit about some of those things. What are some of the things that you that you are going to be looking to do as you continue to grow in your career and beyond? Right. Yeah, I, I'm really passionate um, in group economics, uh, entrepreneurship. Private equity, um, so let me put that in a little easier term. Group economics basically is the fluctuation of money within a community. So I'm big into understanding. I came from the south side of my, my town in Fort Wayne, and I always had to go to the north side of town, to the malls or the west side. And it's those neighborhoods are the suburbs where all the you know, nice things are at. And so for me, I want to be able to create a system where you're able to not see a difference in economic structure. You know, that's my end-all, be-all goal. Um, but... Also, I'm, I'm big into, into entrepreneurship, uh, you know, ownership, being able to, uh, you know, own something, grow it, and then see it fruition. And that's that goes right in hand with um, uh, group economics. You know, you want to have people who want to own markets, who want to own the, uh, you know, the the stores and everything that helps put a put a community together. Um, mm -hmm. So big and also the real estate. You know, I think that's probably one of the best assets that you can you can have uh, land. There isn't, there isn't more, can't create no more land. And uh, right. I think, right. you know, you, you, you understand what increases the value of land. I think you can, uh, you know, make a pretty decent profit off of that as well. So um, I signed with uh, Vayner sports uh, and I think Gary V who's the owner of that man. He's one of the best um, venture capitalists in the country, which is starting up a business and, uh, and he's extremely smart in what he's doing, and I'm trying to eventually learn off to him and their their access and their relationships to help grow myself as a businessman and a pro. So. I, th I think the group economics thing is 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 fascinating to me because it's one of the things that I always kind of talk about. Is it's like we always glorify individuals, right, becoming mm -hmm. rich and becoming successful, but it's completely different a different mentality to think about. I want to advance mm -hmm. a group of people with me, not just my own self-interest. I think that's powerful. And I just wanted to kind of hear what inspired you or who inspired you to start thinking, thinking along those lines. Um, man, it was, it was really just more of my own struggle. Um, in 2007, like a lot of people, uh, my family hit, hit from it worse than pops, uh, you know, worked for uh, FedEx, you know, a company FedEx and uh, making 15 a week, which at the time was great. You know, we'd go to Toys R Us whenever I wanted as a kid and, you know, could have any game, right? 
to then him, you know, you know, becoming unemployed and, and everything disappearing to almost having to be on the street. And that's when uh, I'd really start to, you know, fine tune and understand uh, about like, hey, like if you don't pay your rent, you know, you won't be able to live here anymore. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know anything. You're just, you're just living there, right? Yeah. And I started, to, mm-hmm. I started to just learn these little tools of, you know, housing and living and this and that. And I'd see the neighborhoods where it's easier to afford to live and where it's harder to, to afford to live. And, and I always had these questions. And as I got older, I had, you know, great mentors, um, you know, like Mike Lito and Trey Muhammad were my mentors from Fort Wayne. And uh, they eventually put a word to it. And that was group economics. And, uh, and, and they instilled in me a lot of this business-minded um, – you know, curiosity. And uh, I've kind of self-taught myself a lot of it and really read into a lot of, um, you know, great entrepreneurs and businessmen. Um, but that's really my story. So. That's great. Let me get uh, back to a little, a little bit of football uh, stuff before we get you out of here. Uh, one question that, you know, I just think Buckeye fans probably want to know the answer to is, you know, you actually got a chance to play with, obviously with Urban Meyer and also under Ryan Day. Talk to us a little bit about them and what are some of the differences between them as coaches? Yeah. Um, first off, both great men, um, just great people, individuals. Um, but they're both on the opposite spectrum um, <laughs> of coaching. Um, right. It's it's honestly, uh, it's crazy. But, uh, I mean, Coach, Coach Meyer was more of a guy who was very direct, very uh, – loud i mean sometimes you'd be pissed off at him but you got to bite your tongue and move on right um you know and coach day is a little bit more logical a little bit more um less forego but more give you a chance make your mistakes and then come talk to you um but he can still get after it don't get me wrong he can still get after it pretty much but um coach coach meyer really really used fear tactic uh, at at its utmost while uh coach day was a little bit more I want to say lax, but not as, you know, up there. So, right. And then, and then last, last question I have for you is just really just talk to the Giants fans. You know, they're obviously Ohio State fans and Big Ten fans and even beyond that, no Austin Mack, but maybe there are a lot of Giants fans who, who haven't been exposed to you yet. Talk to them a little bit. Tell them what type of player it is that they're getting and what they can expect from you, you know, as the, your continue continues, continues to go. Oh, yeah. No doubt, man. This one, this a fighter, man. Uh, a really good overall football player. Uh, excited to be in uh, New York and, and to be around, um, you know, that, that company of that excellence of that, of that, uh, that organization and club. I'm really just trying to first and foremost, know what it's like to be a pro, learn what it's like to be a pro and, and, uh, and take it day by day to, to eventually make that team. Um, that's my goal right now, starting today. And they're, they're getting somebody that's going to, you know, put, do everything you can for, for the team's success. So, Yeah, and wanted to circle back for a second also because you mentioned Gary V earlier, and now you're going to probably have more access considering you guys are both in New York. Right. He's, he's, he's a well-known Jets fan, of course, but just right. tell us into your thought process of picking him and why he was ins- inspirational to you and how your conversations with him have been. Man, they've all been really good. Um, as soon as I decided to go with the Giants, he said, "Welcome to New York." So, I've, so nothing, mm-hmm. no, no envy yet or any any beef yet with them. But, uh, <laughs> right, right. Um, but man, G's, G's a brilliant dude. Um, 
it's still kind of uh, that's I really don't get starstruck or usually have issues asking questions. But that's one of them dudes where you respect his time so much and, and who he mm-hmm. is that you know before you even want to talk to him, you got to make sure you come you know correct. So uh, every time I do, man, it's, it's always he's he's very humble and he's always full arms of giving me a, a complete response. And and uh, when it came to making that decision. Uh, me, I just think when, you, when you're looking for an agent, it's more of the agency rather than the agent. An agent can only do so much. And uh, when you when you go with an agency who has the access and who has the, the marketing ability and all the things that Vayner Sports has, man, it's I just think, think you can't you can't go wrong with it. So I'm excited to keep learning from him uh, as the years years go and see where this this go uh, this adventure goes. So excited. Well, that's awesome, man. I guess it's going to be different, man. This, 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 obviously, you know, as fans, we're like really missing sports, and you know, we're hoping that we can get we can get back to it. And you know, we're obviously really excited for you and in your career, and, and we hope everything works out for you in New York. Um, so you know, that. definitely keep us posted, and uh, thank you for joining us on the Pilot Boys Podcast, man. I appreciate you, Mac MV. You know, take All care, right, stay safe. Love the Pilot Boys Podcast. Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1, and we have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys Podcast. Show us some love today. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast, episode 28. Time to hit some news and notes. You ready, V? Let's get it. All right, man. This is uh, actually kind of crazy. We're going to start with some RIPs, man. There are some very important people um kind of in popular culture and then also in music um who passed away recently now one of them is andre harrell uh founder of uptown records who was responsible for so many artists that we've that we know of today mary j blige jodeci he found puffy who obviously found biggie heavy d i mean the list goes on and on um he died suddenly apparently of uh, some heart problems um, what were your what were your feelings? Obviously, not just about his death, but about kind of who he was and what you knew about him in music. Well, I mean, obviously, it was very very surprising. Um, it seems like in an industry full of bad people, um, he was able to maintain his integ- integrity and be kind of a, a bastion of light, right? Mm-hmm. Even how he approached business um, and how he handled the Puffy situation, who was working for him at Uptown Records and realizing that he was preventing him from blossoming. So letting letting a talent like that go and telling him to go go get rich. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, right. The number of people's careers that he's responsible for and as a, as a result, so many moments he's created for all of us, both in music and then also I found out he's the creator of um or, or played a critical role in the creation of New York undercover. Um, Not surprising. He was also in the group Dr. Jekyll and and, and Mr. Hyde. Yeah. Um, so when, well you, too. when you factor all those things in and just, you know, the fact that he, um, he just created so much talent and also, like I said, maintained his en- integrity and personality and then also stood up for minorities, right? Because it's also mm-hmm. Uptown Records was also kind of the blueprint that many indie minority-owned labels like Rock Nation and Bad Boy um, used to follow, right? So yeah. it seems like everyone has something positive to say. I mean... That's the, the thing that strikes me, strikes me the most, I think, is, 
you know, typically when, when someone famous or anyone really, but someone particularly someone famous passes away, you'll obviously hear the good stories, but then you'll start hear all these people come out and say negative things about them. And, and that, that this is like one dude, especially in this industry, this is one dude where everybody's stories about him are solid from day one. And the reason why that's impressive is because you realize in this industry and you and I know this, that you will have opportunities to do shady shit at different times, you know, yeah. or not necessarily even shady shit, cutthroat cut throat shit or shit that thing, you know, that people aren't going to be necessarily happy about. That will advance so, your career. Right. Right. Exactly. And he, and he didn't do that. So um, obviously I think he lives by a wife and, and, and kids. So, you know, RIP to Andre Harrell and his legacy, like I said, <laughs> his legacy is going to live on. For as long as we live, as long as our kids live, I mean, really as long as possible because there's so many different people's lives that he influenced. Um, yeah. And it, what's crazy was pretty much that same day, Little Richard passes away. So obviously RIP to Little Richard. He's older, um, but still, it still, it still hit kind of like a ton of bricks. Yeah, and I feel like, um, although it hit at the same time, I feel like what I'm seeing in the media, we're not paying proper homage to who, little richard is like he is mm -hmm. the creator of rock and roll culture i don't care what anyone mm -hmm. says mm -hmm. his personality his energy um i think paul mccartney actually said that he copied everything from him right mm -hmm. the beatles actually when they first started touring the beatles who are considered the biggest group of all time were opening for little richard right mm -hmm. and i think another person who i think was in an industry full of just negative energy um, was someone who was always positive um, and and offered positivity to to the culture. Yeah, and you know, you see things like NBC News, I think, or maybe it was ABC News. One of them posted something like "R.I.P. to Little Richard, the self-proclaimed, you know, self-proclaimed, you know, you know, catalyst of rock and roll or king of rock and roll, whatever." And you know, they got slammed for it because you know, like people were saying, basically that that headline presumes that he wasn't that and that. But then I read an article on the Times earlier, and they were talking a little bit about his life and how, like, the latter part of his life was almost dedicated to this continued proclamation because people would not give him his flowers for whatever reason. People would not acknowledge him. Some people did, but a lot of people didn't acknowledge him as the, you know, creator of rock and roll or even a substantially significant contributor. And so he would trumpet that a lot. And it almost became a parody in a way. It kind of became a caricature in a lot of ways because you know, he would have to do that and people would almost forget about his actual contribution. So, um, but for those of us who know and those of us who are being honest, which again, you know, we talk about honesty a lot. Um, we know what he contributed and we know that people stole his stuff and that's fine because that's what happens in music, but we will make sure that his legacy and people that really care about it will make sure his legacy is definitely upheld properly. Definitely. Yeah. And then the last, well, not the last, but I guess another pop culture one is Jerry Stiller. Um, ben Stiller's dad passed away. Funny dude, man. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. obviously don't have as much to say about him as some of these other guys, but you know, he he definitely contributed a lot um, to some funny moments for us. Yeah, I mean, he's he's hilarious. Obviously, Ben Stiller's dad, but just between all the shows, you always remember him as as the dad, right? Or <laughs> the mm -hmm. fun, and he is just always hilarious. And you know, no matter how bad your day was. If he came on the screen and 
made one of his jokes or said something, he could instantly change your mood, right? And that's true. Absolutely. There are very few people that could do that, and and that's that's definitely something um, that we have to remember him for. For and sure. A nice I guess the, life. Yeah, he did. And the la- I guess the last RIP, um, not to say that there weren't other significant people who passed away, but the other one that's you know running kind of the stories is the um, the Arbery story. Yeah. And, you know, Ahmaud Arbery essentially, you know, was, was the guy that was gunned down, you know, due to acts of racism in, in Georgia. And it's not even really a debate. I mean, there's some people that are trying to, like, show, oh, that he might have entered a construction house and was looking around or some bullshit. You know how they always try to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but But the biggest thing for me is that, you know, about this is that, I just pray that he gets justice because, you know, when you hear the arrest, a lot of times you hear, first of all, you know, these guys should have been arrested months ago, but, but they weren't. Mm-hmm. And now, now they finally are. And, you know, some people are going to relax, but if you know and understand this justice system and how things work in this country, the arrest is not, that's not the be all end all, you know, it's, it's not even the trial, you know, it's, it's the conviction. Um, and then what are they being convicted of? So I'm, you know, yeah, I mean, this is pretty, you know, I had to use this, this phrase, but it's fairly black and white, right? Mm. Probably the best way to put this is this guy, you know, and the other thing that kind of bothers me about it is finding out the background of the shooter, right? The fact that he mm. was in law enforcement, was a police officer and an investigator for the prosecutor's office. Definitely, definitely makes you wonder why charges weren't brought earlier. And then also questions like, okay, this guy was in law enforcement for years holding these types of beliefs um, Mm -hmm. about people um, and then actually also executing a human being. Like there was absolutely no reason, regardless of what was happening, for them to shoot and kill this kid. Um, Yeah. And the DA DA was, or, you know, prosecutor, she, you know, apparently she's a friend of this guy or the dad and, you know, I told police who I think wanted to make an arrest. They told police not to, and they suppressed it basically for months. Um, so I think if you look at it from beginning to end, I think it's an indictment on a lot of things that happen here in this country yeah. from the beginning to end, from, from out, the feelings that are being harbored initially, from the actual, you know, gun death and, and killing itself, all the way to, you know, it not being, them not being arrested to cover up to them finally being arrested. And then to now the ultimate act will be whether there's a conviction or not. And we'll see what happens with there, but either way, definitely want to say RIP to Ahmed or Ahmad Arbery, sorry. And, um, condolences to his family. Hopefully justice is justice is served. And one other, um, RIP of course is Betty Wright. We missed that one earlier. Oh yeah. Miss Betty Wright. Absolutely. RIP to her, uh, very famous singer. And, um, you know, she contributed a lot to the culture. I think she was 66 when she passed away. So RIP Betty, yeah. right? Um, let's move on to some sports stuff, man. Um, first significant thing, I think, is the Major League Baseball talking about opening up, theoretically, and starting to have some type of season starting in July. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about this on previous episodes, and, it, and the writing was on the wall that, that they were going to at least try this. Um, and to me, at, the, at this point, I think – you know, a lot of the professional leagues are really, really trying to figure out, I mean, you got to play to make money. That, that's your business, yeah. right? So 
you can't just show old simulations of old games or throw high, show highlights and still make money. You have to play. So yep. what are your thoughts on Major League Baseball and, the, and you know, this quote-unquote mini season that they're going to start? Well, they have to figure something out, right? And as mm-hmm. long as the guidelines are being met and safety precautions are being taken, um, I do believe that you know everyone wants to work, right? And the mm-hmm. players want to work. They want to resume their careers. So we'll see how it goes. You know, it's like a lot of yeah. things here that we're in a catch-22 because – this country is dependent on consumption, on capitalism, on on generating generating money. Um, you just hope that that pressure is not causing them to take shortcuts and not take all the necessary precautions to make sure that they're safe, right? Yeah, well, I think baseball also is a, in, in a unique position because at the end of the day, we're going to have to start evaluating these things literally industry by industry, sometimes even, you know, locale by locale. Like, what are you actually able to do based on kind of the circumstances of your business to be able to function? In baseball, guys are spread out, you know, so you can theoretically just say not have everybody sit next to each other in the dugout and not have huddles. And you can probably social distance for the most part for most of the game. You yeah, know, pretty much that's six not feet true. apart. Yeah. yeah, you can't do that in, in basketball. And you can't do that in football effectively Um, and even soccer, really. So, you know, uh, baseball is uniquely positioned in that regard. They, They really can, you know, for the players, they really can probably play a whole game and not really come, you know, within contact with people that often, you know, so, um, so we'll see how that works out. And speaking of that Korean baseball, they actually opened back up. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think, I think we're going to see a lot of baseball. I mean, they're doing it with no fans, and uh, <laughs> it's funny. I was I was reading an article about how sports gamblers are so desperate to be involved with something that there's money being poured into bets on Korean baseball games from the <laughs> yeah. United States. So yeah, that, 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 that a, doesn't surprise me. That's a funny side story there. People, but, people are gonna people are gonna find their way back. And speaking of back, Mike Tyson released a video um, of him sparring and boxing with his trainer first of all his trainer is a beast i don't know who would want to do <laughs> what he's doing but tyson tyson at 53 looked fast he looked quick uh he looked like he could get in a little bit better shape but he looked like he was in pretty good shape and he says i'm back i don't know what that means but i i posted i was like i don't think anybody wants to see tyson you know motivated tyson even at 53 maybe i'm wrong but what are your thoughts on it i mean <laughs> I saw those punches and, I, and, I, and you know, the question we always ask, how much would someone have to pay you to take a clean shot from mm-hmm. Mike Tyson? And I don't know if there's a number for that, right? Like, yeah. honestly, even today at 50 some years old, if, if any of us would want to take that and, you know, and I know, I know there's one glass jawed heavyweight fighter from Britain named Anthony Joshua that would probably be scared to fight him right now. <laughs> for yeah, sure. you gotta, you gotta be, man. It's a, it's it's a scary, scary kind of proposition. Um, but I think, you know, I, I know that he talked about doing some stuff for, from charity. I saw Vander Holyfield posted something also training because I think he's trying to do something for charity. Maybe we'll see Tyson Holyfield part three in the charity match of some sort before maybe, you know, he tests the waters again. But either way, I'm excited to see it. Tyson is just, he was just obviously such a dominant figure in our childhoods, um, not just from boxing, but in sports in general. 
and um, he's just an interesting guy. So it's, it's it's also great to see his story from a mental health perspective. Not too many people mm-hmm. recover from the fall that he recovered from in the way that he has. Right. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Let's talk some basketball. Um, you know, there's a few stories happening in basketball. I mean, obviously, we're talking about the NBA. You know, we've talked about that and whether they're going to open up. They're still kind of deciding what they're going to do. Um, there are rumors that maybe they'll open up in like two cities or something like that and, you know, still try to have a playoffs and all that type of stuff. Um, and then uh, I believe it was Charles, Charles Barkley who said that he thinks that if they were to have a season this year, um, you would have to put an asterisk next to the name of, of whoever won in the playoffs. Yeah. What were your thoughts on that when you heard that? Well, I mean, I do think there is some some credibility there, right? In the, in the sense that you can't shortchange teams that went through a full eighty two game season and through multiple seven game series. That's a that's a real test that isn't going to be the same test in this shortened season. Guys have had a couple months off now to rest and recover. Mm-hmm. They're going to be healthy. I don't know if it an asterisk necessarily because we had a playoffs after a strike shortened season in all the sports before, but um, I hear him, but I think it's just Charles again, just stirring the pot like yeah. he always does. So Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, I think I understand like, you know, just all championships aren't necessarily created equal. Right. So in terms of the process, theoretically of how you got there, but as long, so long as the, the format is legitimate, you know, and everyone kind of has the equal opportunity that's a similar, even if it's not exactly the same, but a similar kind of opportunity uh, to how it normally works, then nah, it's not, there's no, there's no asterisk to me. There's a substantial, <laughs> yeah. substantial port, part of the season that was played. Yeah. Um, to still stand on the topic of basketball, obviously uh, the last dance episode seven and eight um, just hit this past Sunday. And, you know, there, there are some powerful episodes, man. I think I think those ep- these episodes are kind of the episodes that will determine what you believe about Michael Jordan as a person. You know, you know, he said before this thing aired, the whole thing aired, that he feared that at the end of it, people aren't going to like him. I think he's not a nice guy. He said that. Yeah. And I think that this these are the episodes that kind of he was probably referring to. What were some of your takeaways from episode seven and eight? Uh, of the last dance. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, obviously, Michael Jordan, growing up for both of us, he was our idol. Um, mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, and it showed some of his, his the negatives, but it also showed why so many of us admired him, right? Because mm-hmm. he, to, the, specifically the baseball story, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the greatest basketball player ever, goes to double A baseball and gets destroyed for it and basically still takes the position. I'm not going to let you tell me what I'm going to do with my life. Mm-hmm. This is a dream of mine and I'm going to try my best. And he really mm-hmm. did try his best. And the fact that he yep. hit 200 for a season, yeah. Yeah. Is, people don't understand that that ain't aren't around baseball what that at any no, level they single right. a, double a triple a to hit 200 is is an incredible feat especially mm-hmm. not having played for over a decade yeah i know? think francona said they had guys on the team that didn't hit that 
you know, yeah. guys that have been playing their whole life never took a hiatus. So, um, and then also the, the the circus around that we create around people to try to destroy them. Like mm. when his father died, the fact that there was zero evidence that it was connected to gambling, and right. anyway, nobody could validate any of it. But that's the story they ran with. Even yeah. back then, it may not be. I remember same. hearing that. I remember yep. hearing that back then. Mm-hmm. And, and I was young, so. And how you know, he, I, yeah, you, you, we were young and we, we don't, we didn't know what to believe. That was a real mm-hmm. rumor that people were believing. Yeah, it was. Right? For sure. Because it was an inexplicable death and how he internalized that, that situation and, and kind of used it as a driving force and kind yeah. of coming full circle when they won the, the championship on Father's Day. That was another big part. And then obviously let's, you know, getting to, you know, this is probably where we're going to talk, like how he handled his teammates, Mm -hmm. right? It's like he had a reason behind why he was doing what he was doing. But people probably still question, like, you and I know we're not going to just sit around and have someone call us a hoe and a bitch. Well, that's the thing. And so that's the thing. I think what, what this thing kind of illustrated was that, you know, and again, we talk about this in other contexts. There are multiple things that can be true, right? One thing is that he was an effective, um, I guess, leader um, from the standpoint of winning, right? And whether guys were happy or not, you play the sport, and especially professional sports, theoretically, you're playing to win, right? And so at that point, you have to, whatever you have to do to win, you do to win. A lot of the likable figures, or a lot of figures who are winners in history were not likable. Bill Belichick, um, is is one. They even Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Those guys are dickheads. They're teammates too. So you know, it's not like you know. There's something that to that. Tiger Woods. I can't even imagine him as a teammate. You know, he's lucky. He's in an individual sport. Yeah. But there are other types of leadership as well. You know that uh, even Steve Jobs, for example, was a dick. But there are other types of leadership as well. Um, of people who aren't necessarily like that, who are leaders, who who still all figure out a way to get to the ultimate goal, and ultimately, this really just comes down to your personality. Yeah, so it's I not mean, the only it's not the only effective style of leadership, but that's just who Mike was. And it's the reason you know there are only five teams in NBA history that have won three championships in a row. He did it twice. The Bulls did it mm-hmm. twice. Um, to sustain that level of winning, we all we know, you know, when Ohio State won that won that national championship how difficult it was for that team to come back and win again, despite being the most talented team potentially in college football history. Like doing that is hard. And there's only been one team since the Lakers era with Kobe and, and Shaq that have done it since. So I think think it's a study in maniacal desire to win and what it actually took for him specifically to motivate himself and maintain that level of winning doesn't mean that's the same thing everyone else needs to do, but that's what he cared about most. Well, I think also, I don't know if he, he was necessarily like that at the outset as much as he beca- as he was once he became a winner. And I think for a couple of reasons. One, I think he kind of learned from Magic, Larry, and Isaiah, um, you know, what it takes to win and, and realized at a certain point that you need contributions from every single person on your team. So you can't, and he figured out what contributions he needed from every single guy. He would ride guys on his team, particularly because he wanted to get more out of more out of them. But the second thing that I think is, and I hope they touch this on this in nine and 10, but maybe they never will. 
But even if they don't, this is something that we can kind of talk about on our own, which is the pressure, man. Yeah. Because the thing is, and he talked about it a little bit, maybe in episodes five and six, the pressure to stay on top when, when, because people are waiting for just, even Reggie Miller said it. He said, I was hoping that I would send him out and I'd retire Michael Jordan. You know, like that's what people are coming for. And when you're a maniac like that, that's part of what drives you as well. All the top Serena, all those top athletes are like that. They, mm-hmm. that, that pressure to stay on top and not get knocked off the pedestal drives them. It, it, it drives makes them, them crazy. And it, and they show like he was making up ways to motivate himself because it's also mm. really hard not to fall in love with the headlines. When everyone's telling you, you're the greatest, you're the greatest, you're the greatest. You get complacent. Everybody does. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also kind of be, what was behind the psychology of him pressing his teammates. He realized mm-hmm. that pissing them off was going to be more motivating to them. Well, the other than, thing, too, that I think, and I think some of it was overplayed a little bit probably because I bet, you know, just like any, any leader, you don't treat everybody exactly the same. So there's probably yeah. certain buttons he pushed on certain guys. I mean, he might have been addicted generally, but – for the most part, he probably didn't treat Scotty the same way he treated, you know, Scott Burrell. You know what I mean? Um, yep. So, you know, that's the other thing, too, is he he did what he thought he had to do. And, you know, it seems like for the most part, besides Luke Longley, who refused to be involved with this, um, and there's articles about it and all that. They have beef still, I guess. But besides him, it seems like most guys have been able to look back and they may not like him as a person, but they appreciate most of his teammates appreciate what it is that he did because all of these guys' lives – um, have changed dramatically, you know, as a result of being part of those teams. Yeah. So I think they've been able to look back and appreciate it. So we'll see what happens in episode nine and ten. Obviously, it's the last two episodes. I'm so sad. You know, yeah. it's like this this thing. I wish this thing would go on forever. But um, but this has been this has been exceptional, and uh, I really really look forward to how they close this out. Yeah. Um, one other one other basketball story that's kind of bubbling right now is Zion Williamson story um basically him being sued by a former it looks like marketing agent who's essentially outing him whistleblowing whatever basically saying that he accepted money his family accepted money from uh, adidas and nike and every first of all it's weird that said adidas and nike but um essentially to go to duke and um you know he's been served with a complaint and you know they're talking about discovery now they've actually screenshotted some of the pages of the discovery of the request they've asked them to admit or deny um interrogatories and what they call rfas which request for admission um what are your thoughts what are your thoughts on it just this whole all these stories bother me when they come out right because it's obvious that we talked about this probably a few months ago with the michigan state situation Whoever this marketing agent was, if if shady stuff was going on, of course, this is all allegations, mm-hmm. you were involved, right? Right. And you were you were happy so long as you thought that um, you were going to get a benefit out of this at the end mm-hmm. of the day. When that didn't go as planned, you're coming out and you're potentially ruining so many people's lives. Everybody who's... Mm-hmm in that world, in that basketball world, knows the shit that goes behind the scenes, that starts at a young age, that happens with parents. It's not, it's not, it's not that. It's it's also, look, Zion Williamson, before he went to Duke, his market value was in the millions of dollars before yeah. he went to Duke. Right. So 
the best thing to do is to create a system, and that's where this personal image and likeness thing is going, creating a system in which these guys can actually capitalize on what their market value is. He wasn't your traditional amateur athlete coming mm-hmm. to Duke as a nobody. He was – no. He had a multi-million dollar brand. Internet sensation, yeah. And that's the thing, too. I think this thing will always illustrate is, you know, where there's injustice, there's opportunity, right? And so I think everybody knows that, that, you know, there's going to be corruption behind the scenes when it comes to college athletics, especially when you're talking about the big revenue um, sports, because they know that these guys are being exploited. And so... You know, there's a, and then not only that, but there's a lot of potential money on the back end. If you're able to get a guy to team up with you um, or, you know, to commit to you or to your, your company in the future, I mean, there's a lot of money on that. In that specifically, so. specifically when we talk about this from perspective of Zion going to Duke versus going to South Carolina, right? The value mm-hmm. that that creates for Nike or any shoe deal that he does afterwards increases significantly if he goes to mm-hmm. one of the top programs um, 100%. in the country. Um, so, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, I feel like we, we hold the kid accountable, but it's, it's the system that we need to adjust, not the poor kid who's coming in at 16, 17, having to make decisions um, when people are pressing him. Right. Let's talk one more basketball thing before we transition uh, to some music stuff. Let's talk about Kawhi because, you know, this is uh, – I think this week is the anniversary of Kawhi hitting that crazy shot in Toronto in Game 7. Um, and, you know, just his greatness kind of being solidified um, a little more because winning in Toronto is not, was not the same as him winning in San Antonio with Popovich and, you know, Tim Duncan and all these great players. And so he did it in Toronto. And now, you know, it looks like he's going to have a shot to do it in L.A., so I guess the question is, if Kawhi gets, I guess I'll ask it this way. What does Kawhi have to do to get into the GOAT conversation? Can he get into that conversation? And if he can, what, what do you think he has to do to get into that conversation? He obviously can. He's young enough um, and he's talented enough. He is probably the best player right now, right? No disrespect to to LeBron or Giannis, but he is probably the best all-around basketball player on the earth right now. Um, And I think the thing that he did in Toronto um, is significant, and going to the Clippers is significant in determining whether he can enter that conversation for one reason. There are only two players in NBA history who've won championships with three different franchises. It's Robert Ory and John Sally. And Mm -hmm. neither of those guys were the the alpha on their teams, right? Obviously Mm -hmm. to be the guy that brings the Raptors organization, their first championship and potentially brings the Clippers, their first ever championship is a big deal. Like one of the reasons that Jordan gets so much credit is because the bulls had never won before he got there. They never won anything. They were terrible. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's obviously organizational support and everything. So, you know, he has two rings right now. If he gets one more, with the Clippers, he enters the conversation, right? So here's the thing. Here's the thing that I think. I think that that argument about winning with multiple organizations is is just it's an overstated. It's kind of a silly argument because 
you know, for example, let's just say Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan put him on the Knicks, put him on the Pacers, put him on the Bulls. He was gonna, <laughs> he was gonna win. So if if free agency was different back then, and he was just moving around the different teams, he would have won with ten different teams or six different teams. I mean, he was just that good. So circumstances have kind of created the fact that these guys are playing on multiple different teams for their career, right? Um, and then the other question you have to ask is just generally the composition. What's the composition of their team? What's the composite composition of the league? Do they have, are they lifting, you know, competitive teams, you know, or is this, are they taking, you know, the last place team that has no talent on it at all and, and make, having them win, you know what I mean? And then just the landscape, like, for example, again, just to put Kawhi's championship, this is not questioning his greatness, but to put his championship in perspective, he also defeated a Warriors team that, you know, um, you know, their guys were hurt. Durant was out. Clay got hurt. You know, it, not saying they couldn't have won that way, but, it, you know, that's, again, circumstances, right? So, again, when you're talking about the GOAT thing, it's, it has to be – you do have to narrow it down a little bit and kind of nitpick a little bit. I so, think, I think him – I, I don't I think agree with his you. Third check, I don't agree yeah. with you. For, for, one, for one key reason, like, to – go to different teams and immediately go from where the Raptors were before to where they became, which were finals in the finals. LeBron did that. LeBron did that. I mean, all LeBron the great that. LeBron, LeBron again, who was, who was the, the, second the best player won 18, in Miami? They won 18 games who, who before was they came back to Cleveland. Talking about Cleveland. Cleveland. Talking about Cleveland. Who was his second best player in Cleveland? When he came second, back to Cleveland? best player. When he came back to Cleveland, Kyrie. Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love. Like, I think what we have to acknowledge with Kawhi. That's what I'm Leonard, saying. Exactly. Kawhi Kawhi Leonard, the Clippers didn't like, have Paul George. They didn't have it, Paul George it, before Kawhi got there. It, it often takes time to build chemistry. Jordan, it took him years and years before that team was good enough to be able to go from one team. No, it, took him getting, it took him getting Scotty. If you want to talk about composition, it took him getting real players that could help. It it definitely no. did. It definitely did. But to it takes, like you said, even when LeBron went to Miami the first year, if if Kawhi immediately goes in one year goes to Toronto in their first year wins a championship, and then he comes back comes to the Clippers, beats LeBron and Anthony Davis, and then beats Giannis in the finals in back to back years in his first year with a new organization. They win championships. That's unprecedented. That's never been done. It's unprecedented because guys never had to do it. I'm telling you, Michael Jordan could have done it. Larry Bird could have done it. If Magic could have done it, all the great players could have done that. That won championships. It puts him in the top ten conversation. And but for sure, I, I think if he wins two rings with the Clippers and ends up with four overall, then he's he's seriously a goat candidate, right? I think. I think he has to win. So I so to answer the original question, which you kind of just answered. My answer is that he kind of has to win. It can't just be one more, right? It has to be, he has to win at least two more um, in convincing fashion. Because again, you have to also look at, you know, one of the things that you look at when you're talking about GOATs is you look at who is the competition, who are their teammates, all those different, what were the circumstances? You have to, just in the GOAT argument. Yeah. And when you evaluate the GOAT argument, it's a narrower argument. So when you look at his championship in Toronto, it was exceptional. But again, who did he play in the finals? He played a wounded you know, great team. That's not, that's not the same as beating a 64 win Supersonics team or a 73 win Golden State team. It's not the same, you know? So yeah, he has to, to get in that conversation. He has to really do it probably two more times to, and show us that again, he can really he, overcome if, if the greats. If, 
it, again, if you want to put an asterisk next to his championship last year, if he comes in, it's again, not an asterisk. It's not an asterisk. Okay. I'm just saying it's if, it, if again, he comes context in, versus if he yeah. comes into LA with an uh, exceptional team with the Lakers, with um, two of the top ten players in the league, and that's what I said, and the Rockets with done. two of the top ten players in the league, and mm-hmm. does it back to back years, that is 100%. a very significant accomplishment, right? I agree. I agree. I said that two more like that. It's it's, it, but context is also going to matter, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I guess we can move on from that because that's, that's something that's still developing and hopefully they do have a season this year because I really don't want this season us to be cheated out of what we were potentially, what was potentially setting up this season, which was uh, Los Angeles versus Los Angeles finals or Western conference finals. And then, uh, you know, Los Angeles versus Giannis finals. I mean, that shit is epic right there. So I pray that that happens. Um, let's move on a little bit before we get out of here on, on news and notes. Let's talk a couple things about some music on um, the versus battles. Erica Badu and Jill Scott had theirs last week. They had almost 700 or over 700,000 people that had tuned in. Um, you know, at first it, it was different. First of all, I, I appreciated their battle because it was different. It was like a love fest, right? In a lot of ways. Yeah. It was, you know, they were basically just showing each other and telling each other how much they admired each other and telling stories and about how they got involved in the business. And um, it, it wasn't competitive energy, so to speak, even though it was a quote unquote battle. Uh, and then it was also a history lesson, man. I feel like I learned even things I didn't know about songs that Jill Scott had written or, um, you know, who they, where they were, or who influenced them. Uh, I I, lo- I I tuned out for a second, and I came back, and I was able to you know finish off and see the end, and I loved it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. You know, it was different. You know, the energy was actually definitely like, you know, on some some chill. You know, s- smoke your weed and and, right, 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 right. <laughs> and chill chill type of thing. But I think I think appreciating both of them, and then also understanding the impact that the two of them have had on women, specifically women of color, mm-hmm. um, that cannot go underappreciated uh, yeah. or unrecognized. And I think for more than anything, that was, that was um, a very powerful aspect. Yeah. It was great to yeah. just, it was great to see just two, you know, powerful, talented, you know, women that had such influence um, supporting each other like that. And then also taking us down memory lane and, and the next versus battle, is supposedly going to be Nelly versus Ludacris. Yeah. And I, when I heard that, you know, I think you were the one that told me that. Um, I was trying to think, like, what are, are they going to include songs they're featured on? Are they going to include, you know, songs that the, of artists that they had brought, you know, under DTP and uh, Nelly and, you know, like Chingy, I think Nelly found, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, but that sounds like, this sounds like a battle Ludacris can win. I think he has more more hits for more years than Nelly does. Probably for more years, but I mean, Nelly's first two albums, you got to remember Country Grammar, when that hit, it sold like 10 million records. You know, Right, but there weren't that many hits on that on that album though, right? Yeah, there were. He had two Billboard number ones on that, uh, on on uh, on that, I'm saying it wasn't like it wasn't like a DMX or like 50 Cent album where like or Jay Z Blueprint were like 10 I mean, songs. People, hits, Nelly, when Nelly Nelly was a pop star amongst those guys, like he his music translates. But how many hits does he have? Is the a question? Ton, does he have? He does he have ton. more than ten? Does he, he have more has, than ten? He has a ton. If you 
The two things that we're so far removed time wise, he probably has at least ten big records, right? And right. And I think what we and have enough to, features and stuff. Enough too. features we have to remember is that yeah. for a period nobody's career maintains and sustains. Very rarely, I'm sorry. There are cases. But you have to evaluate them from the period of time that they were in their prime. And mm-hmm. when these guys were in their prime, what I really like about this versus battle is you have to really know your music history. I know you're a huge Ludacris fan. Yeah. When Nelly first came out. He, I was a huge I'm a big fan. Nelly fan too. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what this versus battle does is it's going to be a reminder for people of how talented these guys are. I think as far as actual rap talent, Ludacris is one of the most underrated probably rappers of our lifetime, I would say. 100%. And he says that. And I think he I think he actually has a Grammy or two, but not that that's the, the measuring stick. But he he's definitely one of the most underrated rappers because he, first of all, you talk about longevity. He's had ex- excessive amounts of longevity, all different types of hits in different decades. Excuse me. And then just a crazy influence um, and a style that's, very unique. So I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, and like you said, these battles are these battles are awesome, man. I, at first, it was kind of just, oh, this is a cool thing that's happening. And now it's actually turning into like literally a cultural phenomenon. And for, you know, our age group and people who've, who kind of lived through that, it's, uh, it's history. It's like a history lesson. It's like watching the Jordan documentary in a lot of ways, right? It's like taking us back to the times of the great times that we grew up and, you know, re-exposing us to things that we had already seen. So um, we'll see what happens with that one. And then the last thing, for news and notes is uh, kind of more of a pop culture thing. Drive-in theaters, they're, they're making a comeback. And, you know, obviously due to the pandemic, um, you know, regular movie theaters aren't open the way they used to be. And um, so it's an opportunity for drive-in theaters. And I've seen, well, I've seen drive-in strip clubs or all kinds of drive-in stuff happening. But what are your thoughts on uh, drive-in theaters? Is that something that interests you? Or is that something that has staying power? Or is this just, you know, a little fun fad? I mean... I think everything that's old becomes new again, right? Mm-hmm. And we see that with fashion. We see that with culture. There's this feeling with, with sneakers. You know, I think that it's, it's there's something unique about that experience. I don't know if when you were a kid, you went to a movie in the drive-in, but it's a different experience, right, than, mm-hmm. than going to the theater. It's very personal, um, you know, whether it's you're on a date or with your family, um, it allows you to be in your own bubble, right? Yeah. And we're, we're, it seems like we're moving more, more toward that generally right now with what's going on with the pandemic to create a way in which people can still enjoy that experience safely is, is, is something I'm always going to be for. And I don't, I don't know if it has staying power beyond this virus, but it's, it is kind of a neat uh, solution to a problem we are, a challenge we're facing. Absolutely. So, yeah. So we'll see. Uh, I'll definitely check it out, you know, at some point. I think it'd be a cool thing to do, but I don't think it's something that I would do consistently. But, you know, a lot of things, like you said, a lot of things are going to change. Things have already. New businesses are are emerging and new businesses and new opportunities are going to continue to emerge. So uh, it's important to kind of stay at the forefront of that, whether you're a business person or a consumer, to kind of understand how the next life is going to be um, post COVID. That's all we have. All we have for news and notes. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast.
Shout out to Premier Podcast for getting us set up with our podcast during this quarantine period. Make sure you guys check them out for all of your podcast needs at premierpodcast.com. And make sure you check them out on social media at Premier Podcast. That's all we have for today's show. Big thanks to our guest, Austin Mack. Thanks to everybody for listening. Don't forget, sharing is caring. Subscribe to the Pilot Boys podcast on Apple, Spotify, Patreon, and YouTube. And please follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And follow the host on Twitter. I am at Mechadon Music and V is at Viswant. And don't forget to grab some Pilot Boys wristbands at shop.pilotboys.com. Always remember, be you. You is fly. Pilot Boys out. Let's go.